Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Please read with me the verses in bold. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when we have ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower, lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. keep forgetting to turn on the microphone. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, again, I'm so glad to have children with us in our worship. And again, if uh, children make noises, uh, it's not going to distract me one bit. And so we're glad that uh, kids are joining us. And just like that. Uh, and I think it just it says something about the community that we have. It says something so special about uh, the people who are invited to the room, that it's not just uh, in, you know adults or uh, intellectual adults or those who are willing to listen adults, but uh, kids as well. Uh, um, yeah, let the children come to me is what Jesus says. And so we're, we're so thankful that we get to be worshiping like this. Uh, we do it once a month and we have kids sitting with us. Uh, so it's kind of to display that, that uh, again, it's the whole body of Christ. And what a um, opportune Sunday that we get to do that this morning. One of my favorite stories from the book of Acts is the healing of a crippled beggar. Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, they make their way to the temple for prayer and stumble upon a man who is lame in both feet and had been from birth. This man had probably given up hope of ever walking and had been reduced to panhandling for a living near the temple gates. And when these apostles appear, 
They walk nearby. This lame man calls for their attention. He asks for money, for loose change, probably to buy himself something to eat. And the story is fascinating because Peter and John disregard his request, but give him something much greater. In Acts chapter 3, verse 6, it says, uh, Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And what happens next is almost like a scene right out of a movie. In verses 7 and 8, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Can you imagine what that scene might have looked like? He not only walked, but he jumped. And I would suspect he probably pranced around a little bit. He skipped as he found a new freedom he had never known before. He walked and jumped and praised God. And as we arrive at this fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us a similar command to stand up and walk. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He writes, walk in a manner worthy. Now, again, if you have been with us, or even if you haven't, we have been in a series in the book of Ephesians over the past month and a half. It's a letter that Paul writes to the church in the city of Ephesus, exhorting them and encouraging them about who they are in Christ. In fact, this particular letter deals with topics at the very core of what it means in the world, both in faith and also in practice. This letter I love because it's neatly divided. For my organized brain, I have, I think, um, some perfectionistic tendencies. Uh, I have a, maybe a little bit of, um, I, I, I don't know, people say that about me, but uh, just my organizational brain makes me love the book of Ephesians because it's neatly divided into two. There's chapters one through three that deal with a spiritual truth. And then four through six, how to apply those truths. Chapters one through three deal with the high society to which we belong. And then chapters four through six deal with the high life to which we have been called. Up to this point, we've covered a lot of theology and doctrine. And as we begin chapter four this morning, there is a shift, it seems, a movement from doctrine to duty, a movement from creed to conduct from the indicative, the way the, the verbs are formed and formulated in the, the first three chapters of Ephesians, the indicatives of the faith, we call them, and then four through six, the imperatives, those things that we are to do. From position to practice, from exposition to exhortation, from things to be believed to things to be done. 
And so Ephesians invites us to consider the work of God in choosing us and adopting us as sons and daughters of God through the work of Jesus Christ and how a life lived in a manner worthy of our calling puts Christ on display to a watching world. So Paul says, walk. He uses this word interchangeably, and he uses this word walk to say, live out or live. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. Practice what you believe. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. Now, some of you might remember the show The Jeffersons. And by, I think, the small amount of laughter, that may be just a few of us. <laughs> George and Wheezy Jefferson. Now, I'm moving on up, right? I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> My voice is cracking already. Now, moving on up to the, to the east side. And it goes to that. All right, I think I have some. Yep. You may remember the famous George Jefferson walk. He would wail his hands like this. He'd come in with shoulders back, chest up, and a confident swagger. I might call it a strut. He walks in, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, friends of the 21st century, Google it. <laughs> now, this might be, in my opinion, the closest thing to what Paul writes about when he says, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy in the Greek is the word axios, which has the root idea of weight or being heavy. That's also the same word with which we derive our English word axiom. I'm talking about uh, math here a little bit, and so you may have heard that word, and I may be hurting your brain if we're talking about math, but axiom, which means to be of equal weight, right? So if you know math, it's that equal sign that tries to balance the two sides of the equation. That's axiom. So in an equation, the axiom indicates something to each side of the equation so that it remains true. So if you're getting a headache talking about math, please bear with me. Paul here is saying that we should try to live lives equal to the great blessing which you have received. He's making this math equation, and again, it's, it's so beautifully organized in the book of Ephesians, and Chapters 1 through 3, again, these, these, rep these repetitions of our great blessings, our inheritance, our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Again, the great spiritual blessing. Again, I believe when I read through the book of Ephesians, it's like someone who figures out for the first time how much money they actually have in their accounts, right? It's, it's beyond. It's more than what you could imagine, right? You, there's someone who who made a deposit into your account, and you realize for the first time that you're filthy rich. And this is that. When you're reading the book of Ephesians, you, you get that sense that we have these spiritual riches and blessing upon blessing and an inheritance that is beyond our wildest imaginations. And so this axiom or this equation that we find in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 through 3 and, and 4 through 6, is this beautiful riches of, of grace which we have received. 
And then chapter 4 through 6, about how we should live. You see, the instructions that Paul lays down in chapters 4 through 6 are not just duty. Right? It's not just responsibility. It's not you just do it because you're a Christian. Right? It's not just you follow the Ten Commandments because that's what you've been told. These are not just requirements for the Christian. But they are to be the overflow, the outpouring or the outworking of the marvelous salvation which God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. So our obedience to his commands are the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we should walk in them. They are the actions which God's grace and power has enabled us to perform and which we gladly do not out of just responsibility, but out of gratitude to God's glory. Now, there are a number of great themes that run through the book of Ephesians. There's a lot of great themes. One that you may have seen already in the first three chapters is this theme of alienation and reconciliation. The Bible tells us that we were alienated from God, that we were separated from God. That we were a people foreign to God. We were fallen human beings, living rebellion, living rebellion, and, and as enemies of God. And then in chapter 2, it says, but God, and we've talked about that before, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Alienation and then Reconciliation. One of the beautiful themes that comes out of this beautiful book that we were who we who were once far off have been brought near because of the blood of Christ. Another the theme you'll notice as this morning as we go through our text is the theme of division. Now here I go talking about math again. Uh, that was a joke. Division and unity. In the first 16 verses, Paul speaks positively of our walk with Christ. Our walk is to be conformed to our calling, but he addresses it because he knows our tendencies. Now, if there ever was a time when we've experienced division, now might be a fitting time as any, a pertinent time as any. We live in tumultuous and emotional times. Nothing reflects that more than conversations with people with opposing social and political views. The space for conversation seems to be shrinking. We can't even talk about it. If not at all, disappeared. And my friends, this is no less true in the church. A similar drama is mirrored in Christian churches across our country. And Paul says that where there was once great dissension and fracturing and animosity amongst ourselves as humanity in view of the fall, through Jesus Christ, through being united to one common Lord and Savior, we have been brought into a family which is now no longer in contention and in a state of fracture, but has been unified, enjoying communion, and shared life and fellowship together. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, for him, for through him we have we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members 
of the household of God. No longer alienation, but reconciliation. No longer division, but members of the same household, members of the same family. So the pressing question, I believe Paul is asking when he asks about our walk, when he mentions our walk worthy of our calling, is this critical question, I think, of how well we're loving our neighbor. How well we're maintaining peace within our family and how by that love for one another we display Christ to a watching world. And so Apostle Paul is especially concerned for our living as Christians to be manifested in this reconciled and unified family through love. Living out our callings means living the Christian, uh, loving the Christian family with all, again, as Paul writes, all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And the Apostle Paul is saying, friends, your witness to the world is dependent upon the manifestation of my grace in your families and in your church family as you love one another. The truth that radiates from verse 2 is that Christian unity doesn't begin with external structure, but rather the attitudes of the heart, humility and mildness or meekness and patience and loving tolerance of one another. And again, uh, you'll see the basis for that in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Again, Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How many times did you hear the word one? Seven times. And if we're being really technical, it appears the verse right before in verse 3 when he says one another. And then in verse 7 again where it says uh, to each one in the English. But that's a lot of ones, right? And again, Paul is making a point. And again, this reason why we're calling this series One in Christ is because of the overwhelming repetition of the word one. And particularly in these short verses in 4, 5, and 6, seven times... One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. The importance of being one in Christ or in Him. This is the basis for our Christian unity. And the high calling does not justify a haughty attitude. We cannot boast because we're part of the inner circle. We cannot boast because we're part of a special club or a secret society, a privileged fraternity or sorority. We did not get in by our credentials. There were no dues we covered or series of hoops we jumped through or some passing of an initiation. Not standing on our own personal merit to say that I'm smarter than you or more righteous than you, or I know what we ought to be doing in this situation and I think I know it better than you do. But it's humility. And if we're going to manifest a world-changing love in this local church, it's going to start with the thinking of ourselves less, and particularly in an attack of our pride, the putting to death the flesh, and the cultivation, which I think is so important, the cultivation of gospel humility. 
the way we view one another. Paul has mentioned it, not by anything you've done. Now, listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 4 and also in verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. Or how about, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by his blood. Or for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All these reminders that this is God's work. Ephesians remind us that our position of blessing and privilege must not in any way promote our own pride or our own arrogance that we have gotten to where we are by our own doing. My friends, we are not better than those who are lost. We in our former condition as lost sinners are just like the rest of mankind. But here's the good news. We in our new condition in Christ are righteous and forgiven only because, only because of what Christ has done for us. And so therefore, our salvation by grace should produce a humility and gratitude in us. And Paul spells out the attitudes which, which befit the Christian in these first three verses. And now these are attitudes, are not, um, not techniques or methods. In verse 2, it says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's words in these verses remind us that Christian unity does not come naturally or automatically. Christian unity must be diligently preserved and promoted. We must be committed to the preservation and practice of Christian unity if it is ever going to be evident to the world about us, it is one of the sure signs that God is at work in us and through us. In John chapter 13, Jesus reminds his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. It's fascinating because when you read through John chapter 13, it's actually not a new command. Uh, it's actually an old commandment. It's actually a command that God gives to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Love one another. But here's the new command that Jesus says in John chapter 13. is says, a new command I give to you that you love one another. He says, even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, these are not, again, I might point out, these are not virtues highly regarded by the world, but as weaknesses which should be set aside or overcome. The world does not offer seminars on humility, mind you, but on self-esteem and self-confidence. The world does not teach gentleness, but does give instruction about how to be assertive. And the attitudes which Paul proposes are those which the world opposes. It is humility that promotes unity. 
And it should be clear that this virtue is indispensable for the Christian community. It assumes a proper sense of self-worth, not weakness of character, but that of a proper evaluation of oneself based on a realization of one's own dependence on the grace of God. It's the willingness, my friends, to waive one's rights. It's the willingness to the sake, for, the, for your sake, that I lay down my rights that you might gain. This is a, a paradoxical, I think this is a, an unheard thing in the world. The world assumes that we, we fight for it, that we gain it by assertion, that we do whatever we can to, to retain our rights. But the biblical example that, that Christ gives is one of example. Even as I have loved you, that he would lay aside his rights. Philippians 2 is a beautiful picture of Christ laying aside his position and his privilege and becoming a man, come to us in human form, taking the form of a bondservant, laying aside his rights, and dying on a cross in our place. Willingness to waive one's rights that comes from seeking the common good without being concerned for a personal reputation or gain. The world may call into doubt the world may call into doubt the way we do things why we gather on Sundays in the midst of a pandemic the world may question all sorts of things Well, my friends, the world cannot deny the power of God's grace operating in the new humanity so that people who otherwise would have been fractured are brought together in mutual love. The world sees love and they understand it. How we love one another. Outside the four walls of the church, they may not understand the, the doctrines we hold to, the reasons why we fight over theology or our practices. But the world cannot call into doubt our love for one another. This, I think, is so important, an important prayer for us to pray that kind of humble and gentle and patient and forbearing love would be manifest in our church, in our congregation, that our love for one another may win a person for Christ. Paul continues, if verses 1 through 6 speak of what all Christians possess in common, we have this oneness because of the work of Christ in our, in our stead, which is the basis for our unity, then verses 7 through 16 speak of that which Christ 
individually possesses, again, uniquely, which is another contributing factor to, to Christian unity. Again, in verses 7 through 16, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. It's, again, it seems very weird, I think, that, again, there's this big section in verses 1 through, thi- 1 through 6 about Christian unity, that we bear with one another in love, that we show humility and gentleness, and we tolerate one another. And all of a sudden, it seems like Paul's switching gears in verses 7 through 16, and all of a sudden, talking about spiritual gifts. And it seems so interesting that, again, Paul does this in this short section. But again, he's talking about diversity, a diversity that exists among us. Now, think about all different body types. There are tall and a little bit less tall, (laughs) muscular or athletic, and those who aren't. Um, you know, uh, personality types or maybe uh, different attitudes, people who are nervous uh, versus people who are calm. Uh, Think about those who are mathematical and analytical and those who are free-minded and free-spirited, artistic or musical or other than musical. There may be huge differences among us. But again, I think in, in this Delivering of a spiritual gift, this, uh, this passing out of spiritual gifts, Christian unity is profound. Again, uh, Christian unity in profound diversity brings great glory to God. So let me, let me ask, how can diversity contribute to unity? Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In what way would Adam and Eve become better, uh, become one, be, Better become one flesh by being created exactly alike or being made different from each other. Again, think about the ways that they correspond to one another. And I think the answer is obvious. The differences between Adam and Eve were by divine design so that their unity would be complete. Apart from each other, they were not complete. And this is why God said, it is not good for man to be alone I will make him a helper suitable, literally corresponding to, for Adam. There's something so unique and so divinely created that that God would produce a diversity of people, a diversity of gifts, and he would distribute those diversity of gifts to, to in some way, in a small part, represent this diverse God that we have. And the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian church that we are individually members of this extraordinary organism. What a startling claim that the Lord of the universe has a body and we belong to it. We are his members. We are his limbs, his organs, his flesh, his hands, his feet. We are the ears and the mouth. We make up this beautiful body of Christ. Let me share one last story before I close. It's a story taken out of a commentary, a commentary by R. Kent Hughes. He talks about his children. He says, when my wife and I were young parents, the school was presenting its annual Christmas program. Two of our children had parts in the class play. He says, Holly, our eighth grader, had the lead lead of Della in O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. And our fourth grader, Kent, had four lines as a wise man in the Christmas pageant. Holly's play came first, and she articulated her lines perfectly, projecting them so the whole audience could hear. And she was dramatic, moving 
about the stage as a perfect 19th century heroine. At times, her hands extended imploringly, then her wrist to her head in a dither. She stole the show, and when it was over, we, pro we proudly joined the chorus of applause. And then later Kent, came a Kent's play. He had been working on, this four, on his four lines since Thanksgiving and had found it difficult to remember them. Now, not only that, he was terrified of the stage. Still, we will never forget the moment he stood in his shepherd's costume which is with his black tennis shoes showing beneath the hem of his white robe, his sa eyes saucer-wide with stage fright, and his hands repeatedly flexing at his sides. We held our breath as we heard his, him say, strange feelings come upon me, though I know not why. The night is still around me. The stars shine in the sky. Those were her li his lines. And, he, and then Kent, R. Kent Hughes writes, there was no way we could applaud. <laughs> it was the middle of the play. But our hearts applauded. And how pleased we were with both our children. That evening, we came to better understand, uh, R. Kent Hughes writes, that God is not so much interested in our being the star of the show as he is in our doing our best with the part he has given us. And so we do our part, we experience church growth. If the head and body are truly one, then I must never forget how I treat you, how I treat the church, because as I treat the church, I treat Christ himself. This is a much larger section, and so I'll just kind of finish it with this. How does biblical growth come? The text says that clearly God gave some to be apostles and teachers, those who equip. I think it happens through leadership, which is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Again, teachers who, who preach and teach, and I would say live out God's word. I think it happens in discipleship in which God's people are prepared for works of service and using their gifts to the fullest for the betterment of the body of Christ, whatever that part may be. I think it happens through progressive maturity of God's people so that all are involved in the lives of others and in, another, in one another's lives. And the very last part of this it says through truthing in love as we Love in truth, or in truth, we love. That we're transparent and honest and loving, and we do, we do this with one another. The church of Christ grows. It's a wonderful section. It's a wonderful section about how by ourselves, there's inadequacies and, and weaknesses. But when the body of Christ comes together, Become as the, the whole body of Christ, to serve one another and to, to love one another and to display to a watching world what Christ has done for us.